this morning, then you're already, like I said, off to a good start, 2023. Uh, the first day of the year, I honestly think the older I get, it's just like any other day. But a lot of times people like to have different milestones. They like to reflect on the year that's happened in 2022. They like to look forward and even make goals for 2023. A lot of people make resolutions for the new year, and I've read that over 90% of them are not kept. I was looking at some weird New Year's resolutions online, and I found some that kids had made. So these are five New Year's resolutions that different kids made this last year. Alice, age seven, says that she wants to draw more, and her parents said hopefully on paper and not on the walls or anything. Daphne, age 10, said that she wants to make more friendship bracelets. Kelsey, age 9, says she wants to ride her bike every day, unless it's raining, or she's sick, or she's tired, or something else comes up. <laughs> Logan, age 10, says he wants to read and get to level 100 on Minecraft. I'm assuming that's really good. And then finally, Alice, age 4, says she wants to just keep doing whatever she wants. And to that I say, Amen. Now, I don't really get into New Year's resolutions. I've tried before. There's different things that I look ahead to 2023, and I say I like to do better in these areas this year. I'd like to try to accomplish this. Obviously, for me, one big thing I hope to accomplish is getting married by the end of the year. But as I look into next year, even for our church family, one thing I want us to focus on just as we, as often as we get a chance is worshiping our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I don't say that because I think we do a bad job worshiping, but as we understand from this text and from others, worship is to be the theme of our lives. We were made to worship. We don't worship God often like we should. And really, when we get to heaven, what are we going to spend our time doing? Worshiping Him. And even in Revelation chapter 5, our text this morning, we get a peek, an insight into what worship will be like in heaven. You see, many people think worship is constricted to the songs we sing, maybe the worship service, different things that happen. But according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, our lives are to be a form of spiritual worship, a sacrifice given to God. So it's not just in what we sing or going to church or just on Sundays, but every moment of our lives is given as a sacrifice, as an act of worship to God. It's responding to God based on who he is and what he's done. Worship involves giving God the honor, the glory, the praise that he deserves. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about when you eat, when you drink, whatever you do, you should do everything to the glory of of God. So really in every aspect of our lives, we can choose to worship God. We can choose not to worship God. When we watch sports, get coffee, we have an opportunity to worship God. And my prayer for us is that we would better worship him this year. So the question becomes, how can we worship God better? Does that mean we try to sing better songs? Some people mistake worship by thinking worship is just, again, confined to music. So you should sing these songs and not that those different songs you should play with a piano and drums and electric guitar. Or you shouldn't play with any instruments. There are different opinions on what worship is. But the problem is we've confined worship to just being about music. When I don't really think worship is that much about music at all. 
We confine worship to being something that just happens on Sundays when really worship is a dominant part of our lives. And the truth is this morning, you will worship something. Even if you lead the worship service and you don't think anything about what I said, the songs we sang, you will choose to worship something today. You will choose to worship maybe God, His Word. You will choose to worship His Son, Jesus Christ, or worship God through His Word, I should have said. Or you will choose to worship yourself. Yesterday, I was watching college football. My brother's not a football fan, so he had to kind of put up with some of it. But there are thousands of people who go to stadiums who are there for hours, who spend thousands of dollars, literally, not just on tickets, but on food, drinks, tailgating, all these different things. You cannot tell me that that is not in some way a form of worship when you look at their lives. They're spending all this time, money, and effort. They're just pouring into watching a game that's going to last for a couple hours. And in a year or two, you're not going to remember really who won. And I, as you know, love football. There's other things that we can worship as well. We can worship our comfort. We can worship our security. Oftentimes, the things we worship show us where our desires truly are. As we look at our text this morning, we start to see a scene of a worship service in heaven. In the book of Revelation, like I said, it's a difficult book to understand. It's not always easy, but it's part of God's word. As Schaefer spoke today in Sunday school, God has given us his word. He's given us his spirit to help us understand his word better. And so I believe that God would have us to study this passage even this morning and understand how we can worship him better through it. What I want us to see is just a simple point that we should worship Jesus above everything else. Jesus should be predominant in our worship. And really from Revelation 5, when we understand what worship looks like in heaven, we can start worshiping Jesus more than anything else here on earth. And so we look at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation, like I said, is not an easy book to understand. But I think if you read the Bible literally, if you understand the Bible, if you ask God's spirit to help you, it's not a book that we should be afraid of. It's not a book that we should avoid talking about. Really, Revelation is not just a bunch of theories and speculations, but it can be very practical. It's what is happening next in the future. There's a lot of different views on what happens in the future. But my prayer is that from our text this morning, we would understand at least this part of it well. We know that Revelation was written by John, the apostle. As I read earlier in the service in Revelation chapter 1, John was on an island of Patmos when he received this Vision. He gets this vision from God, and then he sees Jesus in all of his glory. And we just read that passage, John seeing Jesus for who he truly is. And then Jesus tells him to write everything down that he sees. It's going to be some things he's going to tell him not to write down, but we won't get into that this morning. He has him write everything down that he sees, and then he gives him these different letters to the churches that we see in chapter 3, and in chapter, or in chapter 2, and in chapter 3. There's seven different churches that each have different letters. You should read those at some point. They're very practical for the local church. And then we really get into the rest of Revelation starting in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we get a different worship scene in the same room, but it's worshiping God who sits on the throne. 
So that's what chapter 4 is about. And really chapter 4 is going to help us understand chapter 5 in a second. But in chapter 5 we see another worship service as well. But this one is focused more on Jesus Christ. And so there's three different aspects of worship in heaven I want us to understand this morning. The first one is this. Worship in heaven is intensely desired. Worship in heaven is intensely desired. Look with me at verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So oftentimes when we read the book of Revelation, we're going to see John use this phrase, then I saw. Why is that? Well, because he's really seen this vision. He's seen all of this like he's actually there. So John is witnessing all of this. He's seeing this and he's looking at this person seated on the throne. Now, who's seated on the throne? It's obviously God the Father. That's very clear from chapter 4. The angels, it says, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So chapter 4 is a worship service dedicated to the person seated on the throne, who is God the Father. And God the Father is holding this scroll in his hand as we start chapter 5. Now, we're going to talk a little bit later about what this scroll is here in a second. But I want us to notice a couple things about it. First of all, it has words on the front of it and on the back. Now, I won't get too deep into this. There's some scholars that are like, well, actually, they didn't write on the back of scrolls back then. Well, sometimes it would actually write like a summary of what was on the front side of the scroll on the back. But it's also in heaven, so they can do really whatever they want. But the scroll was written on the front and on the back, and it's wound up. And sealed with seven different seals. This was again a custom during um, John's day of having something sealed, and you would have something that would open the seal. Now, again, remember this isn't like a codex or a modern book. This was something that was rolled up. It's not like a chapter book like we have today. Now, the biggest question that we have is what is written on the scroll, or what does the scroll represent? And there's a couple different views that people have about this. Some people think it contains lament or woe for the coming judgment. So if you read the book of Revelation, as Christ starts opening up these seals, it's not a good thing necessarily for the world, the people who are on the earth, because the seals represent judgment that's going to come on the earth. And there's seven different seals. There's different judgments that come after that as well. And so what do these seals represent? Well, some people think the scroll itself is just saying giving a judgment or lamentation for the people on the earth because there's going to be a lot of death there's going to be a lot of destruction and i would say maybe but i think there's a little bit more than that some people think it just represents the progressive unfolding of world history and that each of the seals represent a different part of world history i think it's more than that as well what i really think the scroll represents and it's important that we understand this I think the scroll is really the inheritance or the title deed to the world. It's being given to Christ, the Lamb, that we will see later. And so then you ask, well, why is there all this judgment and death and decay? Well, those are the things that are going to happen in the tribulation that lead to Christ coming back, setting up his millennial kingdom. So all this judgment, death, destruction, God's not just doing that because he wants to be vindictive but those are all the things that are going to happen to the world before christ sets up his kingdom here on earth i really think it represents the fact that christ is inheriting the earth and we talked a couple weeks ago jesus is the king yes everything is under submission to him 
yes, everything is under his feet, but Christ will return. He will have a physical kingdom here on earth. And what we're starting to see is the unfolding of that, even with this scroll. So there's different theories on what the scroll is. You may think it's something else. I believe, like I said, it's the inheritance of the earth given to Christ and the seals are the judgments that are going to take place for that inheritance to come. So God, the father has this scroll in his hand. We see in verse two, it says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break his seals. Now in revelation, a lot of people try to speculate maybe too much. There's some speculation you have to have to a certain extent. They try to say this angel is Gabriel or Michael. The truth is, We don't know who the angel actually is. We know it's a mighty angel. We know he speaks with a loud voice. That word, that phrase with a loud voice is actually going to be used 20 more times in Revelation. We're going to see it a lot in chapter 5 as we study it today. So this angel makes a proclamation as John sees God the Father with a scroll. The angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So this begins this question that's going to dominate the first part of chapter 5. Is anyone worthy to take this scroll, which again I think represents this inheritance of the earth that Christ is going to have when he sets up his kingdom on the earth? And so it's starting this search. And by the way, this is a legitimate search that they have in heaven because we look at verse 3 and it says, And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So I... I don't know what kind of search process this necessarily was, but they knew there was no one in all of heaven. There was no one on the earth. What is under the earth? It'd be hell. There's no creature that is able to take this scroll. Now you might say, well, what about God the Father? You got to understand it's in his hand. It's actually his scroll. The earth is God's to give to Christ. It's how the Trinity works even within itself. Schaefer talked a little bit about this today. The Trinity functions in perfect harmony with itself. Christ is equal to God, yes. But the earth is God the Father's to give. So he's giving the scroll. The angel is asking, is there anyone who is able to open the scroll here in heaven? And no one is found in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that is able to open the scroll. And we see in verse 4 that this is an emotional, it's a challenging Thing in heaven because it says John begins to weep. He's distressed, he's upset because there's no one else that is worthy. Now you might ask, what makes someone worthy to open the scroll? Well, I think it's in two parts. It's based on who they are just intrinsically, their lineage, who they are, and what they've done. And we're going to see the one who's able to open the scroll completes both of those qualifications. There's no one in heaven based on who they are able to open the scroll in heaven on earth under the earth there's no one who's done anything who can open it either so john begins to weep loudly because no one's able to open this scroll and we see that they are looking for this person to open it who can unleash these different seals on the earth but who also can have this inheritance of the earth now we're going to see later obviously there is one who will come who opens the scroll later But even as I was thinking about this, it reminded me a little bit about a comic series that I'd read about Thor and his hammer. If you've ever read that before, Thor is the god of thunder. He has this hammer that no one else can pick up. Only he can touch it because it says he's worthy. 
And in the comics, he drops it on the ground and other people try to pick it up, but no one else can because no one else is worthy to open it. And as I was thinking about that comic series, I thought, what really makes someone worthy to pick up his hammer? Because it's not really clear in the comics, except for the fact that he's really the only one who can do it. Even as we look at who's worthy to take this scroll from God's hand and open it, there's only one person who is able to do that. It's Jesus Christ. I didn't mean to spoil it, but we're going to see that very clearly. It's Jesus Christ who is able to take this scroll. And what we're going to see in this text is that when Christ takes the scroll from God's hand, it's not just about him having the scroll, even though that is important, that he has this inheritance of the earth. But it's important because he is the one then who is going to be worshipped. God the Father has been worshipped, yes, but Christ then, after he takes the scroll, is going to be worshipped as well. These angels who are in heaven, these living creatures, the elders, all these different people, they are going to worship Christ because he has the power to open the scroll. Now, a lot of people, a lot of companies today are looking for employees. I've never really seen a time like this in my life, at least, and I'm very young where I've seen so many different employers looking for employees. And something that happens when you're looking for an employee and you've been on a job search is you start maybe fudging on the qualifications a little bit. Well, maybe this person doesn't need this certain degree or this much experience. What I've seen companies do is say, we just need someone to fill the position rather than someone with all these qualifications we set up earlier. Notice in heaven, they're not fudging on any of the qualifications for who is able to open the scroll. There's only one person who's able to open it. We will see him later. He's able to open it because of who he is and what he's done. We'll talk more about this intensely desired worship in heaven in just a moment. But I do want to take our attention to verse 5 as we see the one who's able to open the scroll. Look at verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this one is identified who is able to open the scroll. And he's identified in two different ways by this elder. By the way, all these different people we're going to meet, the elders, the living creatures, there's a lot of different theories on who they are. Some people think the elders are just some kind of higher angelic power that is in heaven. I think that could be the case. Some other people think they represent the church in some way. And I would say it's probably more likely they represent the church in some sort or fashion. But exactly what will they be in heaven, I honestly can't tell you for sure but they do represent the church in some fashion. In chapter 4, we see that God on his throne is surrounded by these elders, by four living creatures, and then by all these angels as he is being worshipped. So they are all in the throne room of heaven. One of the elders is telling John, hey, you don't have to weep anymore. There's actually one who is able to open the scroll. It's this person who has conquered. That verb conquer comes from the Greek word Nikia, which is actually where Nike gets their word for their brand. It means to overcome, to have victory, to vanquish. So this person is able to open the scroll because he has conquered. What has he conquered? Well, we know that Christ has conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's conquered the grave. He's risen again. So he's conquered in that way. 
But we also see it's based on who he is as well. This elder is going to use two different names to describe Christ. First of all, he's going to call him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This phrase is first used in Genesis 49. So think all the way back to Genesis, the end of Genesis with Joseph and his brothers. Joseph goes to Egypt because he's sold into slavery by his brothers. But what happens to Joseph? He spends some time in jail after being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He ends up rising up the ranks in Egypt, becoming an official in the land. And when there's a famine, his brothers and his fathers are saved because Joseph was in power. So Joseph says, hey, you guys meant it for evil when you sold me into slavery. God worked it out for good. So Joseph's father and his brothers come to Egypt in the land. And Genesis 49 is a really interesting chapter because in that chapter, Jacob gives like his kind of last will and testament in a certain sense. It's like his last words to his sons. And it's this poem in Hebrew poetry that describes each of his sons in a certain way. And it talks about what's going to happen to them. And it's very accurate. In fact, it's 100% accurate as to what happens to each tribe. When he gets to Judah, he starts talking about how Judah will have this lion that will come from its tribe. And how he will have the scepter and rule forever. So even from Genesis 49, we see this lion of the tribe of Judah who will come from the tribe who will rule and reign forever. We know that is Jesus Christ. Jesus, as you read the genealogies, and sometimes we don't like genealogies in scripture. Sometimes we think they're a waste of time. But read the genealogies about Christ. They show us that Jesus came not only from Adam, but also from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and how his line has been preserved even until he comes as a human. So why is Jesus worthy? Well, he's the one who's foretold, even in Genesis 49, that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who has the right to rule the earth. Now that second phrase that's used is called the root of David. The root of David. And this comes from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 11, 1. And it points Christ into David's lineage, saying that he again has the right to rule. Talks about how Christ is the root of David. He is this branch that is going to come forth and rule. And rule. It points to the fact that he is a descendant of David who was the king. Why is that important? Well, think back to 2 Samuel 7. David says that he wants to build God's temple And God says, actually, I'm going to build your house with your children. There's always going to be someone on the throne of David, and your kingdom will last forever, pointing to Christ who is descended from David, who has the right to rule. So these two names that the elder gives to Jesus, they're not just names that he's throwing around, but they're specific names that point to Christ's authority and his kingship in Scripture. So the elder says, weep no more. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And again, this is important because Christ has authority over the earth. Yes, but it's also important because he is the one who is going to be worshipped. Notice this theme of the first four verses, how they are looking for this one who could open the scroll. They're looking for this one who was worthy, who had the right to rule. But until Christ comes onto the scene, they could not 
find him. So there was great weeping. In heaven, there will be an intense desire to worship Christ. It will be predominant. Now we're going to see at the end of Revelation 5, the Father and the Son are both worshipped by everyone. Yes, and we've seen the Father worshipped in chapter 4. But in heaven, everyone has an intense desire to worship Christ. And why is this? Because he is worthy of worship. He's worthy based on who he is, his qualifications, who he is and what he's done. When we worship something or someone, we are responding to the value we find in that thing. Now, worship is not only, like I said, confined to singing or to our worship service, but worship is a response to when we worship God, it's a response to him. We can respond even in our lives. If you have questions about what you worship this morning, if you wonder, what do I really value? What, do my de- what are my desires really focused on? Ask yourselves these questions. What do you think the most about? What occupies your day the most? What do you wake up thinking about? What keeps you up late at night that just won't let you go to sleep? What are you worried about? If you were to ask one of your friends, hey, what does this person talk about? What would they say? For me, people would probably say football, your dog maybe, you know, maybe now your fiance. What do people say about you when they say, hey, this person is all devoted to this thing? Here's another question. Are there things in life you are willing to sin in order to get? Are there lines you are willing to cross for a certain object? Are there ways that you'll even twist scripture in order to prioritize, to preserve, or to attain a certain thing? Maybe it's not an object like money. Maybe it's a feeling. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a certain position. Maybe it's comfort, security. What do you prioritize above everything else? Look at these first five verses of Revelation 5. What seems to be the priority of everyone? It is the worship of the one who is able to open the scroll. It is Christ. And it's so intense that John is really, in my opinion, trying to figure out what's going on. But he sees all these people looking for Christ to worship. And when they can't find him, he starts weeping. And he's upset. What are the things that will make you upset in life what are the things that will discourage you i'm not saying it's wrong to care about family friends even your position in life but do you care about those things more than you care about god do you care about those things more than you care about worshiping his son worship in heaven is intensely desired and i think it's going to even be more intensely desired than anything we could ever understand here on earth Notice, secondly, it's intentionally directed. Worship is intensely desired and intentionally directed. We've seen a little bit of this in verse 5. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. They worship him because of who he is. He has the right to rule, but also because he's conquered. He's overcome. He's vanquished sin. So look at verse 6 with me as we see them respond to Christ being identified as the one who can open the scroll. (coughs) And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. 
standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now we see what is a little bit of an oxymoron or a paradox. The lamb here is standing up like it's alive, but it's also slain. So is it dead or is it alive? Well, it is alive, yes, but I think it's showing that it has the scars like it has been slain, a lamb that's been slain. We know this is true of Christ even after he rose from the dead. Thomas, after the resurrection, wasn't there to see Christ in person. They told him about it, and he said, I'm not going to believe until I actually put my hand in his side. And so Christ comes back, and he says, here, you know, you can put your hand in my side. And he later tells Thomas, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Christ had his scars even from when he died on the cross. So this lamb, it's alive, yes, but it's standing as though it's been slain. It's showing the life that Christ has, but it's not negating the fact that it had died. It had given its life as a sacrifice for sin. Now, there's some other things we have to understand about this lamb. First of all, the fact that he calls Jesus a lamb. Why does he call Jesus a lamb? We talked about this a couple weeks ago with the sacrificial system when we were talking about Jesus, our great high priest. The lamb was offered as a sacrifice for sin. It had to be a perfect, spotless lamb. So this is what they would associate with a sacrifice that Jewish people would. Jesus is the ultimate lamb. All those different sacrifices in the Old Testament, they all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that Christ would make. So he is really and truly the lamb that was slain for sin. So Jesus is there. He's the lamb standing like it was slain, but he's still alive. And it says he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, this is why people struggle with Revelation, because they think, why does he have all these horns and eyes and things like that? Well, horns were representative of different power or authority that someone would have. Eyes would represent different understanding. So these horns and eyes that the lamb have represent different aspects of who Christ is and the authority that he has. So he's standing there, and then it says, these are the seven spirits of God which are sent out into all the earth. So this brings up the question, are there different spirits of God? Are there seven of them sent out into all the earth? Well, seven we know is the number of perfection. It's the number that is perfect. That's why seven is continually used in scripture. What is the spirits of God sent into the earth? Well, I think it is a reference to the one Holy Spirit. And the seven is used to show the perfection. So Christ is standing there with, I believe, what is the Holy Spirit represented with these horns and eyes. Now, there's more I could say about that. You may still have questions about that, but that's the best I can do to try to help us understand at least a little bit of what is going on here with this lamb. So this lamb who's slain, who has the seven horns and the seven eyes, he goes and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. He grabs the scroll from God the Father. Then in verse 8 it says, When he had taken the scroll, he doesn't immediately open it. Why? Because the four living creatures fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So as Christ grabs this scroll, we immediately start seeing these creatures move into an act of worship. 
They have harps because harps were associated with worship, especially in the Old Testament. We get to the question, what are these bowls full of incense? It says they're the prayers of the saints. There's a couple different views on that. Some people think it could just be prayers that we have here on earth. I think it's more specifically tied to the prayers of the martyrs that are made for justice. We're going to see later in Revelation 6 and 7, these martyrs who are continually praying and pleading with God for justice. And I think these prayers of the saints are associated with those martyrs who have been killed for the name of Christ. They were killed wrongly. They were killed unjustly. And these are those prayers showing that they are going to be justified by what's going to happen with the seals. I don't know if that makes sense. So these different creatures that have the bowls of incense, when it says they're the prayers of the saints, I think that's referring to the martyrs who pray later on in Revelation. Remember again, this tribulation that's going to happen, it is God's justice on the world. It leads to his kingdom being set up on the world, but it is part of God's restorative justice. We see the first of three different songs here that are sang. It says in verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we see in this first song that is directed towards the Lamb, we see intentional worship from these living creatures and from the 24 elders. So we see that this worship starts with just them, and it grows as the songs continue into the rest of heaven. They first tell him that he's worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy to open the scroll. Why is he worthy? We've talked about that. Based on who he is, he's the son of God, and he's conquered the grave as Jesus. He says, you're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, which we'll see Christ do later. And why is that? Well, he says, for you were slain. Why is Christ worthy? He's God. Yes, that's true. But it also shows that he's worthy because of what he's done on behalf of sin. It says he was slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. There's a lot of different talk about this as well. How did Christ ransom a people for God? Does this mean that only those who are Christians are the people that Jesus died for? Well, no, I think Jesus died for everyone, but not everyone is saved, right? Those who are saved become part of what is seen here as the people of God. I think different than the people of Israel. The people of God, and it says they're from every what? Tribe and language and people and nation. Why is Christ worthy? He's died. He's the lamb. He's God. He's also the lamb who was slain for the people of God. And he's ransomed this people of God from all these different ethnicities, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And also look at what he's done for them. It says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So they are part of this kingdom that Christ is setting up. And they're also priests. Now you might think, how are they priests? What was the function of a priest? A priest would go to God on behalf of the people and their sin. Who is our great high priest that we talked about? It's Jesus. Jesus goes 
to God on our behalf, he goes to us on behalf of God. So in what sense, because this verse is saying all of us are priests, and in what sense is that true? What I think he's saying is, or this song that they're singing is saying, all of us have access to God. We don't need the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's why I'm called a pastor and not a priest. None of us need to go to a priest for confession. None of us need to go to a priest to sacrifice a lamb anymore for our sins. But we have access to the Father. We are his people. We're his kingdom, yes. But this shows the intricate access that we have as the people of God to God the Father. We know ultimately Jesus is our great high priest who also gives us access to him through that role that he has. And then the song ends by saying, and they shall reign on the earth. We are his people, yes. But those of us who know Christ, who are believers in Jesus Christ, we also reign with him on the earth. So we're priests, we reign with him. All this first song is focused on why Christ is worthy to open the scroll. Because he's died for sins because he's risen, because he's ransomed this people, and done all these different things for us. Even as we think about, we should think about how this affects our worship of God. We should also just be thankful that Christ did all of these things for us. He died for our sins. He ransomed us as his people. He made us a kingdom. He gives us access to God. We see in heaven that worship is going to be intentionally directed to Christ. The focus will be on him. Have you ever heard a worship song? And I'm not trying to bash new worship songs. There's some that I really like. There's some that we even sing here at our church. There's some worship songs, they don't really talk about Christ. And so you're not sure whether or not it's talking about Jesus or your boyfriend or girlfriend or something. Worship in heaven is going to be intentionally directed towards Christ. Is there any doubt from the language that's used here that worship is focused on him for who he is and what he's done? Notice how intricate all of this is. And I'm not saying we have to sing songs with all these words that we don't understand. But they use all these different terms to talk about Christ. Notice in verse 9, it's also a new song. That doesn't mean that we have to keep writing new music all the time and that we can't sing old songs. I actually don't think that's what it's talking about. It's a new song in the fact that it's showing us a new aspect of Christ. It's not new like it's written new, but it's showing us his work of redemption. It's a unique song, might be a better translation of it. A song that is only for him. So this affects our worship service. Yes, it affects our singing. We should sing to worship Christ. We should structure our worship services around him just like this text does around the worship of christ we intentionally direct it towards him but it also tells us that our lives should be focused on the worship of christ when you pray do you pray not just to check it off a list not just to get through the requests that we have as a church and that's not wrong to pray for prayer requests but do you pray to christ intentionally directed towards him for what he's done do you worship him even each and every day in prayer thanking him for what he's done 
thanking him for who he is. Is your life, as you think about the things you do as you go throughout your day, is it focused on the worship of Christ? Do you see Christ for who he truly is? That's one of the great things about Revelation. When Christ was here on earth, he was God and man, yes, but he looked like a man. In Revelation, we are seeing Christ for who he is as God. We saw that in Revelation 1. We see him as the lamb who suffered for sins here in Revelation 5 and all of his splendor and glory. This in Revelation 5 is the worship that Christ deserves. So do you recognize Christ for who he truly is as both God and man, as Savior and as ruler? Lastly, even as we think about worship, think about what Christ has done for us, making us a kingdom, making us priests to God, giving us access to him. Are you thankful that you're part of the family of God, that he saved you, that he's redeemed you so that you can worship him? Are you thankful that you have access to God and to Christ and you don't have to go through anyone else? Worship in heaven is intensely desired, it's intentionally directed, and finally it's universally displayed. I broke on the alliteration a little bit on the third point. So it is universally displayed. Let's look at these last two songs that are ascribed to Christ. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. So notice it's not just the living creatures. It's not just the elders now. It's all the angels. And how many are there? Well, it says myriads of myriads. A myriad is about 10,000. So 10,000s upon 10,000s and then thousands of thousands. Are we supposed to add this up and say approximately how many there were? No. Because the truth is, you can't count them all. They are uncountable. There are just thousands of angels who are singing this song. Notice again, we see they're saying with a loud voice. If you don't like loud noises, heaven is going to be loud. Because it keeps saying with a loud voice. But it'll be okay. The second song we see, they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So once again, worthy, he's worthy. He has the right to rule. He has the right to reign. This lamb who is slain, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, what's interesting about what, how they worship Christ is they said he's worthy to receive these things, but he already has power. He already has wealth, wisdom and might. So you're worshiping Christ and saying there's really nothing more that I can give to Christ that he doesn't already have. This power is that word dunamis that we looked at a couple weeks ago. It's the capacity to work, <coughs> the capacity to move. Wealth is the infinite riches that Christ has. Again, we can't add to the abundance of wealth that he already has as king. Wisdom being the potential, the, not just knowledge, but making the right decisions. Christ makes the right decisions. He's perfect. He not only has the knowledge, but he knows how to use it wisely. And then finally, this might, this power of God. He says, worthy are you to receive these things, but Christ already has all of them. So they give him honor and glory and blessing. And if it wasn't enough that all these angels... Thousands upon thousands upon thousands worship Christ. Look at verse 13. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. All of creation now takes place in this worship service. Notice it's everyone in heaven. It's everyone on earth. It's even everyone under the earth. I think it also points to a day when we read about that we read about in Philippians where it says every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Both people are worshipped here. God the Father is worshipped on his throne. The Lamb is worshipped as well. They're ascribed blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So these things are ongoing. And in verse 14, it says, The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This worship is confirmed by the four living creatures. The elders continue to worship. We see that worship in heaven is universally displayed. Whether or not someone chooses to worship Christ here on earth does not negate the fact that they will at some point one day worship him for who he truly is. We see it's universally displayed. And as we think about how Christ is worshipped in heaven, there's nothing really we can add to it. Yet we as Christians want to try to worship Christ the best that we can, even while we're here on earth. Worship isn't just about music or the worship service, but it's funny, even as I was teaching last year and we'd have chapel and different worship songs and things like that, all these junior high boys wouldn't want to sing. And I would always tell them, what do you think we're going to do in heaven when we're worshiping Christ? We're going to sing. Now, that may not be all we do. We're going to spend eternity worshiping him. But it's not just confined to music or the worship service. It's confined to how you live your life. Is your worship focused on Christ and him alone? Is he the object of what you worship? Are you anxious? Are you excited to worship him forever? The best part of heaven is not just going to be getting a get out of jail, get out of hell free card. It's not going to be all the cool things we might be able to do or may not be able to do. The best part of heaven will be seeing Christ for who he truly is, fellowshipping with him and worshiping him forever. And it's an experience that I don't even think I could put words to today. The worship of Christ in heaven, we get a glimpse of here in Revelation. But I think the feeling of being there and worshiping with these thousands of angels and all these different people around the throne, it will be like anything, unlike anything we've ever experienced here on earth. So as we think about our lives today, as we think about how do we move forward with worship, ask yourself these questions. First of all, how does my personal worship of Christ compare to the worship of him in heaven? Now, that's not a fair question, because just like I said, we're not even going to be able to understand how to worship Christ here on earth like we will in heaven. That feeling, that sense of awe that you have around worshiping Christ is going to be unlike anything you could ever imagine. Yet, we have this text of scripture here for a reason, and I think it does help us understand even a little bit of how we can worship Christ here on earth. How can we do that? Are you intentional about your worship of Christ? 
one of the things that I really don't like about my phone is I get a little notification every Sunday and it tells me how much time I've spent on my phone. It's like screen time or something like that. And it says you spent, I won't tell you how much time it was, so many, so much time on your phone this week. And I think really all that time in one day just on my phone, I can't even imagine if it was in other things, how much time did I spend watching football or, you know, playing a game or things like that. And yet, as I think about my personal worship of Christ, how little time do I spend reading his word? How little time do I spend worshiping him, praying to him for others, telling him that he is worthy? How does your worship of Christ here compare to the worship of him in heaven? Are you intentional about it? What is the object of your worship Are you thoughtful and intentional with how you worship? And then finally, is Jesus at the center of your worship? What are the things that you truly value the most? See, as we start to question what it is we truly worship, we start to get to the center of what is truly at our hearts. What are the things that we value most? Ask yourself this question. 2023 will be a great year if... And I'm sure all these different things can come to our minds. And we're going to experience things in 2023 that are going to be new, some that will be good, some that will be bad, some that will be surprisingly good, happy circumstances. Some tragedies may occur. What will make 2023 a good year? And however you answer that question, remember this. This worship service in heaven tells us that throughout everything, God is still on his throne. He's still worthy of our worship. And all of this is going to transpire one day. But until it does, we don't know when it's going to happen. Until this happens, we have a responsibility to worship Christ here on earth as his people that he's redeemed for himself. So my prayer for us this year In 2023, we would worship Christ better, yes, as a church and our worship services, but even more importantly, as individual Christians looking forward to the day when Christ returns and we can worship him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for sins. We thank you that we can know him. We thank you that we can worship him, Lord. And God, we confess there's not a person in this room that worships you like we should. We all fail in different ways. We all can be selfish with our worship, Lord. We can all make worship about ourselves. God, my prayer for our church family this year is that we would focus on worshiping Christ for who he truly is. We thank you that he is the lamb who is slain. We thank you for what he's done for our sins. But we also thank you that we can spend eternity with him. We ask, Lord, that you would just be with us in the rest of this worship service, this, the remaining songs we sing, our fellowship with one another, even as we look towards your table now, Lord. Help us to be thankful for what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.